Turn again in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel and to chapter 7. Read again at verse 19. And John, calling unto him, two of his disciples sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another? We began reading at the start of the chapter, and there we encounter this remarkable centurion. It's a Roman centurion. He's not a Jew. But we're told about his remarkable faith. We see that worked out in his compassion for his servant, but also the communion that he enjoys with the people of God. We see his confidence in the Savior, the power and the authority of the Savior to simply speak a word from a distance, to say, and it will come to pass. We see his conviction of sin, that he realizes that he's not worthy that the Savior would come to his house. We're told that our Lord, he marveled at the faith of this man. He turned around and he spoke that. He wanted everyone to know that this was something particular and special. The faith evidenced in this man. Maybe when you think about yourself this morning, and you try to examine your own faith, maybe it's more trembling you do than marveling. Perhaps you're so often overwhelmed, and maybe you know so little joy, haunted by sin, not confident for the future. And then, isn't it the case, so often there's so, so little power, so little power. Remember the words our Savior spoke after the Mount of Transfiguration, he came down and his disciples that hadn't been with him were gathered together and there was a boy that had been possessed of a devil and they hadn't been able to help him. They'd helped others before, but they couldn't help him. And our Lord, he delivered that boy. Then Matthew 17, 20 tells us that our Lord explained why they couldn't help. He said, it's because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. If your faith is a grain of mustard seed, nothing shall be impossible unto you. Perhaps your own experience today is that everything seems impossible. And maybe that leaves you trembling. Even of faith as a grain of mustard seed. The point is, the grain of mustard seed is so very small. And after the centurion, with his remarkable faith, we're told about our Lord's healing of the healing, raising to life the son of the widow of Nain. 
that his power and his authority is not only that he can from a distance, but he can reach beyond even the grave. And report of this, it circulated, the people heard. And what our Lord did, he didn't do in a corner, it was a public ministry. As he revealed that here he was, the promised one. And as that report was circulated, there's one very surprising reaction. And that's the reaction of John the Baptist. Told in verse 18, the disciples of John showed him of all these things. And John calling unto him two of his disciples sent them to Jesus saying, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another? John, John the Baptist, this dramatic, powerful preacher, this mighty man of God. And his question is, are you the one? Are you the promised one? Are you who I thought you were? Now, some say that John was asking this question for the sake of his disciples. It was really to draw to their attention that he was indeed the Messiah, the Christ. But the answer is directed not to the disciples particularly, but rather it's directed to John. This was John's question. This was John's uncertainty. So we look at this this morning. What does this notice then that John, this See, faith shaken. Surely that's what this is. It's faith that is shaken. John, you maybe realize, was at this point in prison. That's why he didn't come himself. He sent his disciples because he was imprisoned by Herod. Because he had publicly rebuked Herod. He'd spoken against his sin and Herod had taken him captive. The historian Josephus tells us that he was imprisoned in Macarius, a fortress near the Dead Sea. And we don't know exactly how long John had been there, but it seems that he could read the writing on the wall. He could see what was ahead of him. Remember that Herod would ultimately have him executed. And so there is John, he's imprisoned. And there's no prospect of release. And there's every prospect that this is going to end in a grim way. It's not in keeping with his immediate expectation, is it? In chapter 3, we hear a little about his preaching when he cried out to the people. He says, now the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. He says, I indeed baptize with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he shall burn with fire unquenchable. And yet, Although John was able to declare the greatness of the one who was coming and to point to him, he's in prison. 
this glorious Messiah, this powerful Messiah, has not brought deliverance. The wicked still prosper. Herod, we're told, was impressed by John. He heard John. He heard him gladly. And he did many things. But there was a limit to how far he would go. And John saw that beyond that point, he would not go. And there'd been all the momentum of his ministry and all the momentum of his speaking to Herod and then just a brick wall. It's not a common experience when your expectation, it, it doesn't come to pass. All that you anticipated, you thought you knew what would happen and what the Lord would do. Everything seems to be wrong. And we find that John's faith is shaken. Perhaps yourself, it wasn't always this way. Times of personal revival, times of personal encouragement. Remember my friend Danny, when he was converted, he said to himself, well, the Lord's done the right thing converting me. He was so full of zeal, and he tasted the sweetness of the gospel. And he had this expectation that just as he had heard and believed, so he would tell others, and they would hear and believe, and a wonderful work would advance. He was telling me that, looking back upon his youthful exuberance. A wonderful exuberance and an expectation we should all have, but yet it didn't work out that way. He tried to tell people. They weren't interested. They dismissed them. But faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. Nothing would be impossible. Yet, it's not the case that so often you endeavor something for the Lord. You look around and you see spaces in the church, in your own home. You see those who have wandered far within your own heart. So often a coldness and a formality. And the godless abounding on every side. And the one may be brought down, another will rise up in their place. And they go on with the same godless agenda. We sang in Psalm 42, experience there that we can maybe understand, my tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, where is thy God? And I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For I had gone with the multitude, I had went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Oh, I can look back and remember. But there's a soreness now. Because that seems so long ago, so far off. 
John's question was, are you the Messiah? And that's maybe not your question today. It's not so much about the Lord, but maybe your question today is more about your part in the Lord. It's a question about yourself. No uncertainty as to who he is. You rejoice as to who he is. But maybe that rejoicing is hindered by a fear that you're so distant, so cold. And perhaps this is something that you don't speak about much. Put a brave face on. You know that expression, children, you put on a brave face. It's when you look the part. You try not to show what's inside. You try to look brave even though you don't feel brave. And you know, there's a danger that we put on a brave face as we come to worship. And we put on a brave face when it comes to all of Christian experience because, well, we don't want to let the cause down. We don't want to discourage anyone else. We don't want to undermine any faith or confidence that they may have. If you put in a brave face, you end up with a cold formalism. You end up with dry, a dryness. Well, we see that John's faith was shaken. But you know what else we see here? We see that his faith was shown. Because he called unto two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus. He brings his questions to Jesus. He confesses to the Lord all that is in his heart. He doesn't put on a brave face. John's disciples brought a report to him. And John doesn't consult with his disciples, but he rather he goes directly to the Lord. Not directly because he's in prison, but through the disciples, he says, the Lord he goes to. There's something Remarkable about this because John had been their leader. And he has to therefore acknowledge, confess his uncertainty, his doubts to these men. But it reveals the reality of faith because it's to Christ that he comes. There's no one else to whom he can go. You know, this brave face approach, brave face theology might might want to call it, it doesn't help the cause. Actually, it undermines the cause of Christ because it distances you from others and it distances them from you. It's a refusal to be broken. It's a weakness, not a strength. Paul, speaking about the God's grace and the gospel, said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And we shouldn't fear to let it be known that we are earthen vessels, that we're frail, that we have no strength, that we struggle, that we have questions. 
Questions may appear to be unfaithful, but it's what you do with a question which shows whether it's unfaithful or not. Look at the words at the beginning of Psalm 13. How long will thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long shall thou hide thy face from me? To suggest that God would forget us, that God would forget us forever, well, that would seem very, very wrong. But that's a legitimate question. In fact, that's a legitimate question that's expressed there in the psalm for you to take up and use. It's not faithless to ask that if you ask that question of the Lord. It's what you do with your questions. You know, confused and troubled faith is still faith. Just because you don't have satisfaction today doesn't mean that you don't have the Savior. Told in Hebrews, he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so if you're coming with your questions to the Lord, it shows that you know who he is, that you confess him, that you believe him. Again, these words in Psalm 13, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? These are the words of one who knows, one who is familiar, one who feels distant, but yet who believes and whose faith is demonstrated, even in the agony of their experience. Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. In all the difficulty of his experience, his confidence was in the reality of his God and the goodness of God. No, we shouldn't be afraid to confess our questions, to confess our doubts, to bring them to the Lord. And is that not why you're here today? Because you're seeking the Lord. Is it not an expression of faith that you'd come into his presence? There was many who followed the Savior in his public ministry. Great multitudes and many came for many different reasons. But there was a day when most left. They didn't follow him anymore. They were offended. They'd had enough. And when it was not popular, well, the crowd no longer gathered. And the Savior spoke to his disciples. And he said to them, will you also go away? You remember the answer that Simon Peter gave? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We are here because you alone, O Lord. No confidence in self. No comfort in circumstances. 
no sense of power. But we're here, Lord, because you are the Lord, and there is no other to whom we can go, and so we wait upon you. Faith may be shaken, but faith but is shaken is still faith, and that faith is shown as we draw near to and as we call upon, as we seek after the Savior. Why is it that you seek him? Is it not because you love him? Is it not because you know that he is lovely? Is it not because you've tasted of his sweetness? It's not not because you have experienced his grace, because he has awoken you, because he has opened your eyes, because he's delivered you, because he's expressed himself and all his gracious promises. And so though you know that you're unworthy, you know that he is able and he deals with the unworthy that he calls sinners. That was his people, wasn't it? Sinners and publicans, publicans and sinners, all the despised. And yet he was not ashamed to be identified with them. He was not compromised by being identified with them. You see here, there is faith that is shaken, there's faith that's shown, but there's also, there's faith that is strengthened. Faith, it's a strengthened. Because these men come and they express John's question. And we're told in verse 21, in that same hour, he, the Lord Jesus, cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And to many that were blind, he gave sight. And then Jesus answering said unto them, go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to the poor. The gospel is preached. Faith was strengthened through the revelation of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. You see, the centurion servant, the widow's son, these were typical. These are specific examples, and we're told more about them. But there were many So many that they can't all be listed. The great works that the Lord has done. All affirming his power and his authority. All affirming his presence. All affirming that here is God. God drawing near to his people, calling sinners to give life. The Savior directs them back to Scripture also, because there's a reference here to Isaiah. Isaiah 35. Strengthen ye the weak hands, confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God shall come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. The Lord was saying, see, I'm fulfilling what was foretold, these great mighty works. 
Why was that foretold? It's foretold so that the people of God would be strengthened, so that they would be assured. You know, the Lord knows that your hands will be weak. The Lord knows that your knees will be feeble. He knows that your hearts will be fearful. And so the Lord, in his mercy, he addresses this. He does not despise the weakness that's to be found in you, but rather in mercy. He addresses that weakness by revealing and affirming himself. And he does so in many ways, primarily through his word, but not only through his word. Because that is what he also does through the sacrament. Because there we have a revelation of who he is and what he has done. Faith strengthened as we come to his word. Faith strengthened as we come to the table. So that we would be assured as to who he is and what he has done. That his body broken, blood shed, as he laid down his life, as he died, an offering, a sacrifice, a ransom, not for the righteous, but for sinners, not for the powerful, but for the weak. Faith is strengthened when we see Christ. Faith is strengthened as we come to Christ. Go tell John. Go tell John what you see. Go tell John what you hear. We come in preparation to the Lord's table. So there we will see, be reminded who he is and our part in him. For it is for you, for you who trust in his name, for you who seek him, who love him, for you who need him. That's why in Psalm 42, the psalmist is able to go on and say, Oh, why art thou then cast down my soul? Why in me so dismayed? Trust God, for I shall praise him yet. His countenance is my aid. Cast down, but not destroyed. Overwhelmed, but not without hope, but rather with a great confidence. He shall yet rejoice shall praise him. There's a danger when we try to measure faith. That wasn't the purpose of our Lord speaking to his disciples after the Mount of Transfiguration. And he said, if you have great faith the size 
a grain of mustard seed. You're not to try and see if it's that big. If it's maybe a little bigger, if it's even a little smaller. Not to measure faith. The point is that little faith is sufficient to save. Because it's not about the greatness of your faith. It's the greatness of God. It's faith in a great God. In the faithfulness of God. The integrity of God. The truthfulness of God. It's not about your faith. But the question is, in whom is your faith? Is it not in the Savior? It's interesting too, as you we read through to verse 35, because after John's disciples went their way to tell John what they were to tell him, our Lord turned to the people with him, to the multitude. And what do we find? We find him defending John. He's not despised. He was shaken. He was troubled. He's perplexed. It was a hard time. He was in a hard providence. But he's not despised. Our Lord doesn't distance himself from him. But he speaks about the greatness of John the Baptist. This man who was sent according to promise and who served faithfully in his day. He says that those who are in the, the least in the kingdom of God being greater than John is not a despising of John or minimizing of John. He's speaking about the privilege and the the, the privilege and the, the benefits and the, the blessings that are ours in the light of the gospel as it's expressed in the New Testament. But John was an Old Testament prophet, the greatest. You will not break a bruised reed. You will not extinguish a smoking flash. Rather, we see our Lord defending, delighting in John the Baptist. At the very time when John the Baptist was trembling in himself. And so it's not about whether you feel self-confidence. Not about whether you feel good in yourself. Not about whether you think that you have power. But rather, it's about Christ. And your confidence in Him. Your confidence in Him to deal graciously with the poorest and the weakest the chief of sinners. And therefore, if you recognize Christ as the Son of God, promised Messiah, the Savior, the one who is the Savior of sinners, you're to rejoice in that knowledge You're to rejoice in him. And rejoicing in him, you're to honor him. You're to obey him. You're to be faithful to him. 
and you're to remember his death. And we're commanded to remember, of course, because we're inclined to forget. Not absolutely forget, but it's not always foremost in our thinking. And it's to become foremost in our thinking again. Remember him until he come. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we marvel as we consider your majesty that you deal with such tender mercy. We are but creatures of the dust made in a moment. cannot be compared to the greatness of our God, and yet we are dealt with with such loving kindness. Eternal Lord, be pleased to encourage us this day, that we might be given to see Christ Jesus, to see him more clearly, and to rejoice in his sufficiency. We ask that we might be delivered from a focus upon self, May be delivered, O Lord, from all wrong thinking. We pray that you would then make us wise. Be pleased to do us good as individuals and together. May we be enabled to encourage and strengthen one another. We ask that you would give us grace then to, to... Give us grace to wait with expectation and pardon our sin for Jesus' sake. Amen.